We're also excited today to have Josh Batchelor, who's going to bring the word of the Lord to us today. And uh, Josh, some of you probably know this. Uh, Josh was a student of mine back in the day at Bible College and then left and was doing ministry and then came back and worked for me at Gateway College of Evangelism. And then when we were getting ready to move to Olathe to plant Cross Church, I reached out to him about coming and being a part of that. And uh, he has not preached here, but he is no stranger to preaching. And the church he was at in Tennessee preached and taught weekly. And so we're expecting God to do great things and speak to him today. So would you just lift your voice, your hearts, your hands right now to the Lord? And you, Would you pray God's blessing upon him as he comes to open the word of the Lord Jesus? God, we want to hear from you today. We want to hear what you have to say to your people and what you have to say to us through your word. Let your word, Lord, be effective and let it be efficacious in our lives. Let it take root in our hearts and lives today. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And would you give the Lord a hand clap of praise today? God is good, is he not? Amen. Amen. If you would, we're going to open the word of the Lord today. And I'm continuing on in the series that we have been doing on Daniel. And we are going to be reading in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8, verses 3 through 14. Daniel says, And I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward, and no beast could stand before him. And there was no one that could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with a powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. And it became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. 
And the host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of the transgression. It will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Could we all pray? Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be in this place. I thank you for your word that you have given us to show us the future, to show us, Lord, how we are to live, and to show us what we must do to please you. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our minds, Lord, that we would hear your word, that we would interpret it correctly, and that we would then take that and apply it to our own lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today I want to speak on this simple thought. Our future is in His hands. You may be seated. Our future is in God's hands. And what's an interesting thing, I just heard a lot of my voice come back at me. Interesting. Um, it's an interesting thing whenever we're reading prophecies in the Bible. Because oftentimes you look at them and, what's he talking about? And this happens in various different locations. And sometimes, like here in Daniel chapter 8, we get an explainer of what's going on. And sometimes it's left up to us just discovering as it occurs. The thing that's in, that I want to focus a little bit on today is that for Daniel, when he sees this prophecy, all of these prophecies that he sees, the, the, these visions that he sees, are off in the future. Right? But this one is a special gift to me at least from God in that for us, this is a vision of our past. And well, gives me is the ability to see that God laid out all of these visions and yet because some of these are in my past they are verified to me as truth and if God knew the future about these events in this prophecy then those prophecies that are still yet to come are also true. He's validated his ability to see the future, the end from the beginning, here, which allows me to know that when he talks about my future, that is also something he knows from the beginning. God knows the end from the beginning. I want to walk through and explain some of what happens here. Reading back through, in the third year 
This is at the very beginning of Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after which appeared to me, uh, sorry, after that which appeared to me at first. He's talking about the vision in chapter 7, and now here, the vision in chapter 8. So it's the third year of Belshazzar, which means this is roughly, and you'll, you'll see different dates depending on which historians you read, but this is roughly about 542 B.C. that Daniel sees this vision. Again, depending on what historians you read. Roughly about 542. And of course, B.C., anything B.C., time is counting up. That is, 542, 541, 540, etc., 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 right? And it's not like Daniel's calendar says, this is the year, 542, and next year will be 541. What are we counting up to? I don't know, right? Obviously, what we're talking about here is as we get into the Roman era, we wind up with the common era, A.D., Anno Domino, what we have today, and everything from there counts up through now we are here in 2021, right? And everything previous to that point in time didn't have the same calendar. So we retroactively apply as we research and we study years back. We go back, and this is about 542 years prior to when our modern calendar year was established. So given that, all the events he's going to speak of to Daniel are future occurring events. But here in 2021, we can look back and we know when those events occurred. And I want to walk briefly through that and show that God, again, knows from the beginning what the end is. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. That's a description of Median Persia. In fact, if we look in the latter half of Daniel chapter 8, the angel specifically mentions that. Daniel 8.20 says, As the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. This is again in the year of Belshazzar, which means Media and Persia Darius has not yet conquered Babylon. So Daniel's actually being told that, hey, by the way, Babylon, the empire you're a part of, is going to be destroyed by this other empire that's going to come in. That's part of what he's seeing here. And of course, he will then wind up prophesying to Belshazzar, we read earlier in the chapters, that meeny, meeny, tekel, and I just forgot the last word because I didn't write it down, but he basically says that you're about to be taken out. Darius comes in, takes him out. Done. But Media and Persia, the two nations, come together in what historically we would either call the first Persian Empire or the Achaemenid Empire. And the Achaemenid Empire winds up conquering vast swaths of the known world at that point in time. And they wind up being an empire for about 200 years, from 550 B.C. up through 330.
Continuing on, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and he became great. In 539 B.C. is when they actually conquer Babylon. We have historic dates for this. Babylon gets destroyed, which is one of the larger empires at that time. And they continue to sweep up West, almost to Greece. This is the same Persian Empire, by the way, where Xerxes, we had the famous uh, the Spartans, the Battle of 300 Spartans, right? Battling against Persia. It's that same empire that winds up sweeping Babylon and heading west to the point where they finally get into Greece and start to conquer parts of Greece. In fact, if you take a look, the Persian and Achaemenid Empire winds up covering Again, much of the known world at that point in time. Not all the way up through Rome. The Roman Empire will start shortly after this. But they wind up covering all the way through. You see Jerusalem down in here. All the way down through Egypt. 200 years almost. One of the greatest empires to that date. And yet God had already shown it to Daniel. He moves on, and as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, and he came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with his powerful wrath, and I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So we have the Persian Achaemenid Empire now has a new thing to challenge them. Well, what could that possibly be? The conspicuous horn winds up being Alexander the Great, who after his father Philip unifies Greece. Remember we just talked about how Xerxes went in and conquered parts of Greece? Philip winds up unifying all the Grecian city-states. And then uh, here Alexander takes those armies and comes back through and destroys all of the Persian Empire. Takes it all. And more besides. So all of Egypt, all through the, the, the entire area, takes everything in the space of only a couple of years. In fact, he winds up dying at about 32, 33 years of age. Not a long life to conquer the entirety of the largest empire to that point in time. Daniel 8.21 says the goat is the king of Greece and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Alexander the Great becomes the first emperor, the first ruler over Greece as a nation, an empire that holds vast swaths of land. God knew from the beginning. He reigned from 332 to 323 and wound up dying of an illness. By the way, if anyone tells you that Alexander the Great is the greatest of all time, feel free to tell them he wasn't. 
the goat. He was only the horn. Mark laughed, so I got a good joke out of somebody. But he winds up dying at the age of 32, 33 years old, not in war. In fact, he's returning from war at the time when he winds up dying. God takes him out. Why? Because in the prophecy it said that the horn would simply be broken while it was great. For the horn that was broken in place, sorry, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Not some other beast rising up and breaking the horn. It was simply broken, not by the hands of man, as we see when we talk about other empires, or we talk earlier about the, the, the uh, idol or the, the statue, the image that Nebuchadnezzar sees, right? That a, a stone without, made not by human hands winds up destroying it. Here, Alexander the Great is taken out, not in war, but by an illness. It's simply broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So how is that possible? Well, after Alexander died, he didn't leave his successor. Now his wife was pregnant, and he does wind up having a son after his death. But the problem is, the Grecian Empire had a lot of infighting going on. And so while at first there was some idea that maybe we'll let him grow up and become the new emperor, or maybe we'll, we'll kind of just rule in his place for a little while, after about 40 years, after a couple of assassinations and about 40 years of war, the empire winds up being broken into four. Four separate generals wind up taking different parts of the land. The largest of these is the Seleucid, becomes the Seleucid Empire, named after Seleucid. Uh, he winds up taking basically all of Mesopotamia. Um, Ptolemy, which actually was his general, takes all of Egypt and then supports him to go ahead and take the rest of the Seleucid Empire. And then you have two other generals that wind up taking other parts back towards Greece' homeland. So Greece gets broken up into four major empires. In fact, you can go ahead and pull up that map. And here you can see where they are. The big yellow area, that's the Seleucid Empire at one point. The blue, which I know looks just like the water. It's the best map I could find, sorry. But the blue there, down in Egypt, that again is the Ptolemies. The green winds up being uh, Cassander. That's the other general. And then, and I have a hard time with this name, so I apologize, but we have the orange. Yeah, I'm not going to try. But Scripture continually winds up being fulfilled over and over again. Then out of one of them, one of these four horns, in fact, this will be the Seleucid Empire here in yellow, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. Anytime you see something like the glorious land, that's going to be Jerusalem and Judea, Israel, right? The, the promised land, anything written by a Jew, that's where you're going to be as glory. 
So it grows in all these directions, and it grew great even to the host of heaven. Daniel 8.23 goes on to describe this part, saying, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise, and his power will be great, but not his own power. Pay attention here. But not his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction, he shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and people who are saints. By the cunning, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. Antiochus III, the Great, was king of the Seleucid Empire. As Rome rises, he gets in a war with Rome and loses at Thermopylae. That's a recall. And when he does lose, part of the peace treaty they make is that his son, one of his sons, will be held as a Roman captive, as a political captive. That way, if the Seleucids ever try to invade again, or break their treaty, then he would, the Romans would simply kill his son. Okay, that's how he did business back then. So that son is named Antiochus IV. Now, it's not his only son. In fact, he's got another son that's his heir that will wind up being the ruler of the Seleucid Empire. But that's kind of a deal that's made. Now, he winds up dying, and when he does, his son comes into control. A couple years later, his son's assassinated. Well, his son had a son too. In fact, if I step back here, when his son, Seleucius, comes into power, he goes ahead and trades his son for Antiochus. Rome demands it. I don't remember which. But Antiochus winds up coming out of being a captive from Rome, back to the Seleucid Empire, and now his son, uh, Demetrius, winds up going and becoming and replacing him in Rome as a captive. Because after all, Antiochus isn't that much of a prize for Rome. It's only the king's brother, not the king's son. Again, it's how you do business back then. So Antiochus winds up coming back, and then his brother is assassinated. Well, what do you do? The next heir is in Rome. Antiochus isn't in Rome, but he's also the next, not the next heir. So he winds up declaring himself a co-regent inside of the Seleucid Empire with an infant, which happens to be the son, another one of the sons, of his brother. Once he establishes power, remember, this is all about deceit here, once he establishes his authority, and the other one's just an infant, about five years old at this point in time, he goes ahead and has him assassinated, and now he's the sole emperor of the Seleucid Empire, or the sole king of the Seleucid Empire. So through deceit and trickery, he's able to usurp power over the empire and now becomes its ruler. Again, all told back in 542 B.C. to Daniel, that this would happen. This at this point in time is all the way up in 175 or in the 170s BC. 
The problem is this little horn is also going to absolutely destroy the people of Israel. So on one of our previous maps, we showed that the Ptolemies had most of Judea. Well, at this point, Antiochus is a little uh, bold of face. We just described him as. He invades and he wants to take all the Ptolemies out and reclaim that because he wants to go back to being Alexander the Great. He won't go up against Rome. He'll leave that northern stuff, but he goes and he invades so that he can take out and own all of Egypt. Well, what's in the way? Jerusalem. Judea. So he goes through there on his way, captures all of that, and as he's attacking Egypt, he winds up losing. He hears that there's a riot back in Jerusalem. He comes back, and because he's angry about what happened in Egypt, he winds up sacking Jerusalem. Kills, according to the, uh, some sources, anywhere from forty to 80,000 Israelites, Jews, on his way back to Jerusalem. And then after he destroys Jerusalem, he, said, he outlaws the practice of the Jewish religion. Why? Because he's a Greek nation and he wants to Hellenize his entire empire. Because if you can Hellenize everyone, get everyone on the same beliefs, you don't have to worry about any more uprisings. And after all, the Jewish, Jews are known for uprising against various different peoples. This is part of what's going on now. They're going to uprise here. They're going to uprise against Rome. They're going to uprise against everybody. So he outlaws the Jewish religion. He puts a, uh, a statue of Zeus in the middle of the temple. He winds up performing sacrifices, including a, a sacrifice of a pig. Pig is an unclean animal. In the temple, on the altar, and has them sacrificing at, a, at the feet of a statue of himself. In fact, he winds up putting out coins that have an inscription on them that says, King Antiochus, God manifest, bearer of victory. Has a very high opinion of himself, doesn't he? But then again, the Bible already told us that that was going to happen. Hundreds of years prior to this happening. God knows our trials before we experience them. So we've already seen how he is, he already foreknew all of these events with major empires making major changes over vast swaths of land. But he also knew ahead of time that those changes were going to bring these trials. Daniel 8, uh, sorry, continuing on, said, And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. And it became great, even as great as the prince of hosts. And the regular burnt offering was, not, was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. In this process where he sets up these idols and he does all these other things, a portion, in fact, a large portion of the Jews will start to Hellenize. They'll accept it. Because they're continually walking away from God. That's why they're in this problem in the first place. They've continually left God for idols. 
and for other things. And the fact that Antiochus sets all this up, meh. And so a portion of the hosts leaves the worship of God and starts worshiping Zeus and these idols. But there's always a remnant of the people who still remain faithful. Part of setting up all these things, it wasn't an optional thing to worship Zeus. Part of what Antiochus does is not only does he outlaw Jewish practices, but he mandates that all Jews must worship the Greek gods or be killed. Anyone ever heard of the Maccabean Revolt? Part of the reason the Maccabees, which are a, a uh, sect, or well, a family, and then become a sect, sort of, of Jewish people. Part of the reason that they rise up and try to overthrow Antiochus is because Antiochus tries to force them to sacrifice to Zeus. In fact, as one, uh, as they are being, uh, as they are attempting to force them, another Jew says, "Oh, I'll go ahead and sacrifice to Zeus for them." And they go and they stab him because no one's going to sacrifice to a foreign god for us. And they start the revolt to try to get Israel released from this evil emperor that's trying to destroy the people of God and the worship of God. Multiple times in history we see over this period of time where there's slaughter after slaughter after slaughter of the Jewish people. But God knew the trial before they ever experienced it. He knew from the beginning this would come. God's promises will not fail. His promises will not fail. No matter how dark it looks, no matter what evils will come up against us, God's promises will never fail. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings? The transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the hosts to be trampled underfoot. And he said unto me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings and the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. In the midst of all of this prophecy, God proclaims, I will restore the sanctuary, to its rightful state. I will restore the worship and the worshipers to where they belong. Two thousand three hundred mornings and evenings is not two thousand three hundred days. It's literally mornings and evenings. The way the Jewish would have broken up the day, you've got the, the morning, day, the evening, including all the night. So 2,300 mornings and evenings would actually be 1,150 days. 
for roughly three years, a little longer, three, three and a half years, right? I'll let you guys do the math on that. But that's roughly what it winds up being. And that, by the way, just so happens to be roughly how long Antiochus' persecution of the Jews lasts. See, it started in about 168, 167 B.C., where he implements these sacrifices in the temples. And in 164, three years later, he dies. Another part of his empire starts to revolt, and he takes an army, heads out that direction, and on the way, just like Alexander the Great, he's struck with an illness. Some people say it was a fever, there's different accounts, but he dies on the way, not by man's hands, but by the hand of God, as we just read in the Scripture. Every promise God makes winds up coming to pass. So he dies on the way, and in that same year, the Maccabees, who I mentioned, had started to revolt, wind up taking back Jerusalem. And they cleanse the temple. They throw out the statue of the king. They throw down the the, the statue of Zeus. They cleanse the temple of all the pagan worship and all the idols and all the, the, the foreign things. And they sanctify it. Anyone ever hear of Hanukkah? Surely people have heard of Hanukkah. Hanukkah is celebrated because of this overthrow and this recapture of Jerusalem when they're finally able to sanctify the temple and have a nation again. They're independent. Now, they they become fully independent later on, but they at least have all of Jerusalem and can reestablish worship. And that celebration is held annually every single year. In fact, Jesus winds up celebrating it there in John 22 or sorry John 10 verses 22 to 23 says at the time of the feast of dedication that's what Hanukkah is at that time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem and it was winter and Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon that's what's being talked about there is this overthrow of Antiochus and of the Seleucid Empire and of the freedom of the Jews to finally be able to worship God as God had given to them in the first place. God knows the end from the beginning and He demonstrates it in this chapter. And if He knows the end from the beginning, then He knows every trial that's going to come in our way. He can't know the end from the beginning and not see our hurts and our pains and not see what's going to come up in our life. If He knows all, He knows all. End of story. But even though we only see in our time frame, and even though we may only see the trials we come through, and when we start to question, God, what's going on? I guarantee you the Jews, when Antiochus is ruling, why is God allowing this? Why are people being slaughtered? How is it that we've lost the ability to worship God in the temple? How can these things be? And yet God was still there and still had a promise for them. And he did it. He's faithful 
to perform His promises. If He's faithful to move entire nations throughout history to reestablish His worship in Jerusalem, He will be faithful in our lives to do the same. To bring about His worship in our lives. And if His promises were true for them, His promises are true for us. So when we read things like, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, John 14, 18, we can take that promise for ourselves. That He will be with us, and He will continue with us, all through all of our trials. When he says in Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. We can take that as a promise for God. When he and John, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. We can take that as a promise from God. He will not leave us nor forsake us. But he also said this about our future. And if I go to prepare a place for you, John 14, 3, I will come again. And I will take you unto Myself, that where I am, you may be also. Or in Revelation, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one that keeps the word of the prophecy and of this book. Again in Revelation, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. But here's the thing. Those are the promises. And we know He sees the beginning, the end from the beginning. And we know He sees our trials. And we know He's got these promises. But they only apply if we're following Him. His promises are to us when we serve Him. His promises weren't to the whole world. I mean, they were in a sense, but His promises are in effect for those who seek after Him. But if we do, if we do, Such a glorious promise that for all of eternity we will be with Him. That He will always be with us to comfort us. All the world will see trials and tribulations, but we have a comforter. All the world goes through hurts and pains, but we, as we seek Him, can have His Holy Spirit inside of us. We can have the comforter alongside of us. We can have a future that is assured. But it's all when we seek after Him. 
So my question today is simple. Our future is in His hands if we put our future in His hands. Are we willing to give up the world and put our faith, our hope, our future in the hands of Jesus Christ? I don't know, for me, I've I've seen some pain in my life. I've seen pain in loved ones and in friends' lives. And I can tell you for me, the thing that keeps me going is knowing that He's there. And then I can look back at my own life and see healing after healing, physical healing, emotional healing, whatever it may be, but God has been faithful. And if He's been faithful throughout my life, He's going to be faithful through my future trials. Can we all stand? God is so, so good. He's so faithful. He's so could tell you of time after time in my room not knowing what's going on and calling out to God and feeling His presence sweep into the room. Time after time God changed my world in ways I I couldn't explain. It doesn't make sense. And yet, it just worked. I'm 40 years old. I have a beautiful wife, a lovely daughter. I've been thoroughly blessed. God's allowed me to be in ministry. I'm looking at buying a home. I lived a very blessed life. And yet all that isn't my doing. I've worked plenty of times to no end when I was against God. But following God, I see blessing after blessing after blessing. And yes, there's trials, but it only builds my faith because it winds up being blessed. Can we all just reach out to God? Lord, you've been so faithful to me. And I look out and I see lives here that have both lived their lives for you for a long time and some that are new to serving you. Lord, I pray that you would show yourselves in each of our lives to have been faithful. That you would draw to a remembrance for each of us the times where you have delivered us from trials, delivered us from difficulties. Lord, I thank you and I praise you for the blessings you've given me. I thank you, Lord, that you have assured me a good end. 
that you have made your promises known and that as I follow you, you have always come through. Lord, give me faith. Give me strength. Give me confidence. And give me a passion that in seeing these things, I would serve you to the utmost. That I would seek after your will. That I would bring others into the same hope that I have. The same deliverance I have. The world has no peace. But you've given me peace. Help me to bring others into your peace. In Jesus' name I pray. In Jesus' name. you lift your hands, your voice one more time to the Lord Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we love you. We love you today. God, we want to put our future in your hands, Lord, but not just our future. But we want to put our present in your hands. God, we want you to be the Lord of our lives today in every area, in every aspect of our lives. The future, Lord, is in your control. The future is in your control. God, and we are holding fast to your promises today. We're holding fast to your promises today. There's nobody like you, Jesus. If you want to just step from the pew where you are and make a commitment to the Lord to put your present and your future in your hand, in his hands, would you do that right now? 